The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. And uh, an especially big welcome to anybody who's here for the first time. And Trish is our program host over in the corner. If you have questions after the program, you can say hi to Trish, and she'll let you know what you need to know, or you can check in with me. And uh, usually at the end of the month, I just remind all of us about this beautiful practice we do our best to remember here at the center. It's not just in terms of how you relate to the center, but it's really meant to be a practice we do all day long. And the Pali word you hear here is dana, and uh, it just roughly translates as generosity, but it's really this dynamic. It's something very alive in terms of giving and receiving, and it's a way of living our life with this attitude of generosity or the generosity of the heart, the non-stinginess of the heart. And in practical terms, what it means at the center is that for 25 years now, we haven't charged for any of the programs, and it isn't some sneaky practice that make people feel guilty. It's really about this positive dynamic that you can explore in other relations in your life where you're showing up to whatever whatever part of your life you're showing up and you're really trusting, you're learning to trust the experience of generosity, to give our life away, to give you know our skills and our this manifestation of this mind and body, me, to kind of give it away to the moment, to show up to the different moments of our life 100%, give our life away, not as a business deal, like I'm going to really show up in this moment for this talk because I expect something back, or I'm going to really show up when I'm on the phone with my partner later this evening, she's out of town, you know, I'm going to really show up because... I have to, you know, it's like expected of me. See, that's not generosity, that's some kind of business relationship. Like, I'll show up if you show up, or, you know, I'll show up because if I don't, I'm going to get screwed. So I'm going to show up. So the invitation at the center, it's a place to practice showing up as a thing of beauty, as a thing that's healing and fulfilling in and of itself showing up and receiving whatever you receive when you're here, the goodness of the community, not that it's perfect, of course, the usefulness of the teachings, not that they're perfect, but to really let it in. And whatever your response is, whether you contribute money to support the operation of the center or have some good wishes for the community or volunteer your time or whatever it is you do, to let that be a free gift, to let it flow, in a sense, to flow out of your life, out of your heart, to be an expression of our... And this is true with the most mundane relationships that we have, our relationship to our toothbrush, or to our pet, or to our country, or you know, why wouldn't we want every one of our relationships to be a thing of beauty, something that's very enlivening, and a teacher, a powerful teacher, basically 
showing up where we're a little tight with stinginess, like all the relationships we have that have that flavor of being a business relationship, like strategic. And it's, when it's a business relationship, then we're always wondering, like, could I somehow get more than I have to give? Because wouldn't that be nice? You know, if I could get away. Like we think about this in terms of, just to be provocative, like taxes, right? And we have all our reasons. Well, you know, the government spends the money in the military or whatever. So, but that attitude of like, using the roads or, you know, using the services that come from the different governmental, uh, you know, organizations, but not wanting to contribute, not wanting to be part of it, wanting to justify being stingy. I'm not saying that I pay more than I should or anything like that, but I'm at least interested whenever stinginess shows up in my heart, even when it feels very justified, right? It's like, yeah, but the stinginess itself, the kind of business relationship itself, feels tight. So I've been really exploring more and more places in my life where I can feel that positive dynamic of generosity. Where, wherever it is, and just see, let it come alive. And this is a good place to practice it. Because there's no strings attached, right? When you come and you take a program, we hardly talk about money at the center. We don't send out emails or requests for donations. But, you know, it's just like any other nonprofit organization. We have this place and the retreat center in western Wisconsin that we're developing. And we have our paid office staff and we support the teachers who teach here. So we have the normal expenses of an organization as this. But the idea is when you give, you're giving because it makes you happy, because there's a joy in the giving. It feels right. You're giving in a way that makes sense in your life, not too much, not too little. So the aftertaste of giving feels good. And the the key, the one thing we do ask is that it be a living thing for you, your relationship to common ground. You know, we don't tell people what it should look like, but we ask you to bring, to really show up to the relationship and to encourage you to show up to all of the relationships that we have in life, to all the communities. Because a lot of the communities we're just not conscious of. It's sort of whatever the relationship is, it's more like autopilot. We don't really like consider, is this relationship enlivening? Is it, is it a cause for happiness in my life, in my heart? Or does it exist for me as some kind of weight that I'd rather, you know, bury, not be aware of because I'm confused or because it hurts or whatever. So we kind of bring it into the light of day. And of course, if you have questions, you can check with Trish, you can check with me or... Gail Iverson, a longtime teacher and leader here, is our bookkeeper as well, and she works on Tuesdays. So you can always call on Tuesdays if you have any specific questions about how to support the center. We have more online at the website, and also there's a sheet of paper out by the donation bowls that you can take a look at.
I was talking to somebody today um, from Turkey, and she was telling me about a line from Rumi. Some of you know the Sufi teacher, spiritual teacher and poet. Rumi lived around the 13th century. And there's this really wonderful line that I, I think fits with this topic that I've been speaking about the last couple of weeks, humility. And, uh, and this week more specifically around conceit, really learning, training the mind to see conceit in the mind. And don't, like, isn't that, that's a funny word when we hear conceit. It's sort of like, uh, you know, it's like the word racism. It just immediately, because we know conceit is bad. Racism is bad. And it's like, but we actually want to get interesting, interested in these words, right? They're not meant, it's not, not something to kind of shut down the mind and heart, but really to open it up. Because any frame, right, is to help us see. So tonight I want to talk about conceit. And, and in light of this line from Rumi, so this is probably a rough paraphrase of how it's translated, but this line from this Sufi poet, we are not a drop in the ocean. Right? We hear that a lot in sort of poetry and spiritual cir- circles, that we're just a drop in the ocean. But he turns it around. He says, we're um, an entire ocean in a drop. Right? And that's, a, I think, a more useful frame like to help us understand our lives, right, and the experience of release or spiritual freedom, what, what that feels like, what that looks like, how that arises for us, were an entire ocean and a drop. Right? So the drop is this sort of embodied experience with this conditioned mind, this particular circumstance of my life, There's some relative reality or, you know, definition to my life. And to not be confused by the drop, right? Not to be confused by the limitations of our lives. But not to disconnect, not to feel like we have to disown. In Buddhism, in more Buddhist terms, we talk about like noticing that here in the body, here in the conditioned mind, here in any aspect of the present moment, the mind and body, to see it as nature. This is maybe the equivalent of the ocean. Right? So this is a very particular vibration or reverberation of nature right here, like what I'm feeling, how I'm thinking, how I'm perceiving, all the ways that the limitations of my cultural conditioning, the limitations of my genetic makeup, the way this, the limitations of how this brain affects perception and my sensory experience, Right, so we're not diminishing that. We're we're actually using the limitations 
of our embodied existence, the complications of our lives, the complications of our relationships and of our world, we're really using it to wake up to the ocean that's here. Something that isn't bound by the limitations of this, some people call it a relative existence, but just the nuts and bolts of this body, these habits, this situation I find myself in, these fears and anxieties that I feel, these hopes, things that excite the mind and body. Right? We're circulating, we're moving. It can feel sometimes like a trap, but you know, it can feel like closed loop or you know, our lives can feel in moments quite small or oppressive between our job and our relationships and the messiness, the imperfections and meanness, injustice in our world. And, uh, you know, these problems, both specifically in our hearts and in our families and the bigger problems, they can seem like they're not going to budge. And it can feel, but it can lead to one of two things, you know, either more and more distractedness, get me out of here, right, because it, seems overwhelming or help we feel helpless or we get more dependent on sense experience that's enticing or interesting or juicy to get a little break right to to distract ourselves we become more addicted to pleasures because we can forget the limitations of our what feels like constricted lives, which is why if we're fortunate we get interested in a spiritual practice, right? realizing the ocean in this drop, in this limited existence, realizing the ocean that's here, the unrestricted, the unrestricted movement of all things. That's really what nature is. You know, when you think about what characterizes nature, it doesn't matter whether you're thinking about like the woods or the ocean or the weather or the galaxy or molecules or subatomic particles or, you know, it doesn't really matter what you look at. What you find in nature is movement. Nature is alive with movement. And when that movement is studied with a mind that's clear, then, then you see a nature that movement isn't restricted. You know, you can look at a shoreline and you can see the waves hitting the cliff, you know, the sand or the rock or whatever it might be on that shoreline. And you can, from a point of view, from a relative point of view, we can say, well, you know, that cliff is really restricting the movement of the water. Just like you could say, well, that tree is restricting the movement of the wind. 
It always, we can always tell stories, and we often do. We tell stories from our kind of personal frames, which are often, you know, our personal frames often involve sort of me against the world. Isn't that true? Like most, when we really dissect or look clearly at most of the narration, either what we're, how we're narrating something outside of ourselves or how we're narrating our own life to ourselves, it involves a lot of that, oh, poor me, or me against the world, or me being triumphant against some obstacle, overcoming some obstacle. It It often has a very militaristic sort of quality to the narration, good versus evil. I mean, is there any sort of frame in terms of the narrations and storytelling that's more common than good versus evil. Of course, we're often, not always, but often see ourselves as good and then some other, something other is bad, whether it's mosquitoes or the sticky weather or financial insecurity or whatever it might be, you know, that's the bad. And then money in the bank is the good or the, you know, after the first frost when there are no more mosquitoes or we get out of the June and early July weather and we get into the drier August weather. Ah, like we have a little bit tonight, a little bit less sticky than earlier in July. But it, it's that sort of framing always, but that's not the ocean framing, right? Seeing things in terms of the ocean as that image that Rumi uses or more often here we use the image of nature like when we talk about nature, it's not dualistic in terms of good and bad. I mean, even when some something really destructive happens, like a tornado blows on through, it's hard to think of the tornado itself as bad. I mean, we might put it in that sort of terms, but when we're more reflective, we see that it's neither good nor bad or drought, or flooding, or even a lot of mosquitoes. You know, as irritating as that is, if you have to be outside, it's not that hard for us to really observe the mosquito as a creature just trying to get by. It's pretty easy, actually. I mean, even... The only thing in the way, of course, is we're distracted by the unpleasantness. So it gets our attention first and we miss the fact that there's a hungry creature. You know, a creature that's following its instinct to survive. Not all that different from us. So this is this... um, you know, part of the teaching in humility is really becoming more and more suspicious and uh, more and more quick to notice when conceit is operating in the mind. And this is one of the most tenacious and subtle ways our mind operates and perpetuates suffering. There's almost always conceit in the mind. In in Buddhism, technically, conceit is whenever the mind 
the thinking mind is fixed with an identity of being better than, worse than, or even the same as, right? Because it's a fixed identity. And it's really easy, like we always just kind of want to turn it into good and bad. Okay, okay, so that means identity is bad, right? Any identity, because it's a conceit, is bad. So I'm not going to have any identity. You see, you, you can catch already that, well, that would be your identity, like the person who's not going to have an identity. So it's, identity is actually quite useful, having identities and to be able to use identity skillfully because bringing out an identity, whatever it might be, helps illuminate the dynamic of you know, relationship, for example, or culture. So the, the important thing is to see identity and not be confused by identity and to use identity skillfully to help see, to help illuminate what's not being seen. I mentioned on Sunday when I gave this talk, like some of the work we've been doing lately, um, I've been doing personally and the center has been trying to facilitate because it's so in line with this practice of awakening. It's just to look at racial identity. And this especially seems useful for me as a white person because it seems part of white culture is not to see race. You know, because just for all kinds of historical reasons, cultural reasons, it's just part of that cultural conditioning is just not to see race. And so I've been training myself to notice race, like to use that identity as as a white person person and to notice how it illuminates the space when I'm in different places like to see like oh this is the experience from this white frame and I notice all kinds of things I didn't notice before you know like I notice white places I notice difference in ways that I wouldn't notice difference it's really helpful same thing with like Noticing our gender or sex or noticing our class or our age or sort of our perception of attractiveness or body size. Like letting those different identities that we have and being really honest and conscious of it and, and what, like, and not, not confused by the identity, but just seeing how it shapes perception, shapes our experience. There's no freedom without understanding identity. So the deal with conceit or any fixed identity is not to not have identity or perception, right? But to understand it. Oh yeah, this is just what the mind is doing. Being feeling better than, feeling worse than, feeling the same as. It's like this. So the humility or that spiritual awakening, sensing the ocean in the drop, in the sort of ordinary Mark here at the front of the room, or Mark walking home at the end of the evening, or Mark, you know, doing whatever he's going to do next. Being the drop at 
sensing the ocean means it's not about being perfect and not having any conceit or not having any identity, like actually being an ocean, <laughs> you know, just pure nature, unrestricted, no definition. No, we're, we're this drop. You know, for as long as this life continues, this body, this conditioned mind, conditioned by culture, these particular circumstances of my life, then there's this drop. So the awakening, seeing, realizing the freedom, realizing the ocean, realizing the unrestricted movement of body and mind, the freedom, it's really in understanding this, being intimate with this and understanding it, all the kind of limitations, they're either going to be actual limitations or they're going to be teachers. Like, can we have the conditioning that we have? Like some of you might have the condition of being really sick, having a serious illness in your life, or taking care of somebody who's dying, or some of you might have the particular condition of having a lot of professional success and a lot of respect and a lot of praise that you're receiving right now in your life. So the interesting thing isn't to get locked, the helpful thing isn't to get locked in to those positive circumstances or those negative circumstances, but to be interested in realizing the ocean in the particular the particulars of your life. A sense of full releasing. Or you could even call it like really embodying success completely. Not afraid. And even if you're afraid of whatever success you're having, not afraid of being afraid. right? So somehow a, a generous giving to that particular whatever it is in your life. Or you're having some really difficult circumstances. So what would be in the ocean really a more full and unrestricted embracing of the conditions? And remember, even if you're freaking out because of some difficult circumstances, then the embracing would include, doesn't demand that you're not freaking out or even closing down, or being a bad Buddhist, right? So this is the thing, you don't, there's no realizing the ocean and the drop, it doesn't depend on the drop. The drop doesn't need to be perfect to realize the ocean. That's the point of the awakening process. You don't need, I don't need a different life, I don't need a better meditation practice. I don't need to have had a better past. I don't need the conditioned world, the messiness of the world to improve. You know, this thought that I can't really practice now because, or to put it more specifically, you know, I can't really be free now 
because. And I bet if we went around the room with that statement, I can't really be fully free right now because how many excuses or phrases between all of us, you know, whatever we are, a hundred people or so, how many can, you know, probably each of us could at least come up with 10 to a thousand. <laughs> like, I can't be fully released, fully free, fully happy, fully generous right now because I have hemorrhoids. <laughs> or, you know, I ate too much at lunch. And, you know, or I haven't really received the love that I need. You know, my parents, I totally get, they couldn't show up for me, but it's left me wounded. And the thing is, all of those things exist as some kind of truth. It's not, I mean, we could make up something that maybe isn't grounded in any kind of reality, but a lot of those because is grounded in some sort of, is pointing to something that was impactful. But the Buddha, and I think all the wise, almost by definition, all the wise people before us who tasted some kind of real freedom, spiritual freedom, they were pointing they were pointing to a release, to something that's here and now that isn't dependent on the particular conditions. Now it is true, I see it in my own life, I'm sure you do too, you know, when the conditions of my life are particularly seductive, then it's easier to be distracted and to be forgetful about the ocean, about release, about the possibility of freedom. I mean, it's so silly, really, how what we pay attention to when with just a little perspective we realize, you know, this doesn't really have anything to do with anybody's happiness. And yet I've been obsessed about this for the last hour. You know, but it's not really like finishing a Ru Rubik's Cube or something like that. It was like some things we do are just like pure distractions. Like I just fill in the space of my life until whatever's next is going to happen. And we kind of know it. And in, w in a way, it says something about our confidence in what the Buddha and, uh, and people like the Buddha point to, the possibility of liberation, of realizing the heart that's not oppressed, but doesn't need a different life, a different moment. Right? Because the freedom isn't a function of the conditions in the moment, the relatively beautiful or the relatively ugly conditions of the moment. The freedom is, you could say, inherent. It isn't a conditioned phenomenon. And the, the Buddha uses this quite a bit when he talks about freedom. One of the common phrases for like Nibbana or Nirvana, enlightenment, awakening, is the unconditioned, the unborn not something that comes and goes. Each drop may be different, but the ocean is the ocean, or nature is nature. The unrestricted movement 
or we in later schools, especially this term emptiness, like realizing that this moment, how to look at this moment, how to be intimate with this moment in order to sense that this moment, this moment, not just theoretical, but this moment that each of us are experiencing right now, that this moment in a real way isn't limiting freedom, doesn't limit or constrict release. No matter what that, you know, and it's this moment is a hundred different ways for each of us. So there's nobody, the Buddha, nobody's claiming, nobody's trying to say that we're all having the same experience. Didn't seem true at all. It's probably wildly diverse, the experience of each of our hearts. So they, so what the Buddha's, the freedom the Buddha's pointing to is something we find in opening and being really intimate with the condition. So it's not like a part somewhere else. It's really being intimate. It's really understanding what these specific conditions, these unique conditions are for each of us. And the, the limitation is we think we know, like we have a way of defining how it is for me tonight, what my life is, who I am. So we don't actually meet the specific, unique conditions of our life. We can't realize the ocean that's here because we're so certain. This is where humility comes in. Humility is the antidote to conceit. And so if you don't like the word humility, you could use the the words don't know mind, you know, who knows? Or maybe you prefer the word openness as or not defining as a word for humility. But it's really the antidote to certainty. And we, we use certainty as a way of being safe. You know, we define what's going on, what's right, what's wrong, because it, gives us a semblance of safety, but it's endless oppression, that dependence, that certainty, that arrogant certainty, how we conceive of ourselves of being better than or worse than or the same as. It's the certainty that's oppressive or the need, the dependence on knowing that's oppressive. So the humility is like being intimate with the conditions of the moment, feeling what we feel, seeing what we see. So it's not denying anything. It's really being present, but not fixing, not defining it. You know, it's like, can you see right now that we can be present in the moment, this moment, again, the seeing, the hearing, the feeling of the body sitting, but you see how we can, this don't know mind, this openness, we don't need, we don't need solid ground as we become more intimate here and now. We don't need to define it. And you can, right now, even if this is the first time you've done any Buddhist 
meditation practice, you're here for the first time, we can sense, we can begin to intuitively sense the ocean. This unrestricted movement of actual taste of freedom. Instead of thinking of Nibbana or spiritual fulfillment as being somewhere off in the distance, once we learn how to be good and stop being bad, you know, then maybe something amazing will happen to me. And in a way, we miss the opportunity because if it isn't here and now, why do we suppose we'll be here and now later? Or if what we're practicing now in this moment is being certain that it's not here, then we're going to get really good at being certain that it's not here. Because if we keep practicing that in each moment of our life, oh, this isn't it, this isn't it, I'm not happy yet. I, how can I be happy? My knee hurts. Or I, this is true in my life. Or I got to do this. Or So we have all these conceits, you know, basic ideas of good and bad, dualistic ideas of good and bad, better than, same as, worse than, that the mind clings to, that apparently give us evidence that this isn't it. And so we practice, we're practicing being certain that this isn't it. And we're pretty good at that now because we've been doing it for a while. And so if somebody, uh, you know, if the, even if the Buddha, even if a really wise, powerfully wise, loving human being, articulate human being came and gave the most amazing Dharma talk, it would be very easy for our minds to go, yeah, that sounds really right, but not for me, not now. You know, because, and then we'd have our because. You know, I'm not free now because, right? And we would trust our narration so much that we wouldn't even bother to check whether what that person was pointing to was relevant. We wouldn't even check it out. That was sort of the Buddha's tagline that he repeated over and over. Ehi pasiko, come and check it out. Like, just check it out. Just tr- look, you know. Because this is something that we have to check out in order to have insight, in order to develop that intuitive confidence that there's something here and now. We actually have to check it out. And to check it out, we have to leave something behind. All our conceits, all of our fixed notions, whatever the mind, the thinking mind is clinging to, and we don't even, it's so habitual, we don't even realize the frames, identities, or whatever the, the mind is clinging to. But we have to momentarily let it all go. It's totally fine to pick it up in the next moment because we'll pick it up in a fresh way. We'll understand that identities, views are very useful to you skillfully but they're not, it's not necessary to cling to them for the ego to use it as some kind of security. This is what I believe. This is who I am. I'm the one who's no good or I'm the one who's better than or I'm the one who just wants to be the same as. 
all of those are traps. So when we just are inspired enough, curious enough to open, to check it out, as the Buddha suggests, well, then we sense, we'll get a little taste, a little intuition of an ocean. An ocean that is not restricted, not oppressed by the circumstances of the moment. And it's a seemingly paradox, a seeming paradox, because on the one hand, the world is really imperfect, and people, many, many people, are suffering, right? There's not, it's not fair on this basic, ordinary level of existence. There's a lot of unfairness, a lot of injustice about how things are playing out. So this spiritual awakening to what's here, the sense of freedom, doesn't negate the ordinary truth of suffering and injustice and oppression and greed. It actually allows us to be more engaged and intimate, less afraid, less beaten up by the circumstances of the moment. There's no way to be a good drop without realizing the ocean. So let me leave it here. We have about 12 minutes. It'd be nice to hear from a few of you, your own reflections on this topic that come to mind. And then, of course, any questions you have. Remember to point the mic right at your mouth like this. Yeah, sure. Thank you. Um, this one drop uh, is the entire ocean um, reminded me some years ago at a chiropractor they took one drop of my blood which is actually the representation of my entire body and said check it out and looked at it under a microscope and it was um, very thick thicky um, and then I took one enzyme and they took it again and they showed that the one enzyme in in a minute changed the entire composition of my blood. And I was just thinking how much when meditation is sort of like the enzyme to, um, is, is um, and that like diets and lifestyle and all those things kind of hold us and confine us and keep us down. Um, and blood is sort of like the one thing that kind of does unite us all. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. And the thought that came to my mind, Noel, was just like com- how compassion, like if we're really afraid or in a constricted state, and then in the next moment we have compassion for our suffering, it's like how quickly things change just with that simple movement. Not necessarily easy. Who would like to go next? What other thoughts do you have about this topic or questions that come up for you? What have you been learning about humility, about conceit, about realizing the ocean and the drop? Yeah, Femi, I'm going to pass it behind you. As always, first, thank you for the teaching. Um, I really appreciated the 
conversation one around racial identities and the importance of uh, recognizing them and not avoiding them, but in some way using them as a tool for insight. I think that that is, um, you know, in that way it it moves from this potentially constantly explosive thing to something that can uh, move us onward towards greater liberation and freedom. And I, in thinking about uh, that as one thing, and then additionally, um, just suffering in general. Um, how, so I recently had the experience uh, last week, just like a series of challenging events within a short period of time, you know, culminated with a tough conversation with one of my siblings, got off the phone, I'm just feeling all just blah, blah, blah. And um, just feeling just the, initially the body wanting to resist, like, no, uh, I won't let myself feel it. I don't want to feel it. This shouldn't be happening, right? So initially there was that. And then uh, in a moment, shifting from that and then uh, saying, I can't, I'm, I'm not going to change that I feel this way about it all, but I can change my resistance to how I feel. And um, I did that and <laughs> ended up crying a whole lot. I uh, wasn't thrilled like how how bad I felt, like uh, allowed myself to, but it allowed it to move. It allowed it to like to, to, to process through. And um, that happened to be the same day where I was texting you a lot, being like, hey, let's go for a walk. <laughs> <laughs> um, but allowed it to process to, through. And it makes me think about the same idea with like our racial identities or, or this challenge that I had or anything that has the potential of suffering uh, in it. Like the phrase that came to me is that, Liberation isn't uh, around this thing. It isn't around racial identities. It isn't around the suffering. But it's through the suffering, through the racial identities, through the whatever it is, what's in front of us. And um, that that spoke to me as you were speaking. Yeah. And in a way, just from what Femi was saying, we could identify each of us one sticky place in our lives where there's some hurt or something that we don't really trust opening or putting down the defenses around. And then that's just, even even if it takes us years, but just some sense that the heart or the wisdom that's not afraid to let that pain move, that fear move, that shame move, so whatever the particulars of it is, that's the ocean, right? The ocean is the part, is that wisdom, love, that's, that doesn't need that pain to be different, mm-hmm. that can be right in the middle of it, can lay down right in the middle of it, can open up right in the middle of it. So in that sense, like, I think this is what the important thing in Femi's comment is it changes our relationship to our suffering, right? It becomes like a, place for liberation, for awakening, as opposed to something that we got to go around or something that we have to manage so that I can be awake. And that, boy, that is a a place where we waste a lot of time thinking that I got to get rid of the knee pain. I mean, just something as ordinary as knee pain. And then my practice is really going to take off. Or I'm so restless when I sit, you know, when I get that down, then... 
as opposed to, well, maybe hyper people can be free. Maybe hyper people, maybe there's no problem being hyper. I mean, even something like that. Yeah, thanks, Femi, for sharing. Who would like to go next? We have time for a couple more folks. Yeah, behind here first. Hi. Thank you. Uh, many wonderful things to ponder. And um, I thought what you were saying about generosity was particularly helpful for me because I have a job interview tomorrow. And, um, you know, when you go into a job interview, like the thing I am trained to think about is how am I not going to get screwed on the salary pit, you know, because I always seem to get screwed on the salary bit. Um, and so hearing you talk about, you know, having this Donna mentality going into a job interview, because the job is a very good, it's a very good job. I mean, that's how it always goes, right? The more interesting and helpful to the community of the work, the, the worse the pay. So <laughs> I get it. I get it. Um, so, you know, tomorrow morning, I, I'm just really going to show up with the, the mindset and the heart open vis-a-vis Donna and, and see how it goes from there. So thank you. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Who'd like to go next? Somewhere over here? Yeah, over here, right here. Just help pass the mic. Thank you. Um, I was thinking about when you talked about like the weather, specifically a tornado, as good or bad. Um, thinking about that in the context of like human-induced changes to climate, like f- um, wildfires, and how to like. I mean, there's many different things besides wildfires, but like when that happens because of possibly a human how not to feel like guilt by your identity of a human and not to like innately think that is bad yeah well there are all kinds of movements in nature and the sort of infestation of humans on this planet right because that's what it is it's a it's also a movement of nature and it it will have very natural consequences and the whatever wisdom that exists collectively in humans that might correct kind of some of the direction of what's already in motion, that's also nature. And so we can appreciate nature even when galaxies are colliding. I think that happens, you know, in the great scheme of the universe. There are galaxies that are crashing into each other. Who knows the enormity of that Destruction, but even the word destruction comes from a particular point of view, not from the point of view of nature or the point of view of the ocean, right? So, and the thing is, this understanding can be misused. So somebody who's got a lot of investment in carbon-based energy companies might say, well, you know, global warming, even if it's uh, human-induced, human caused it's just nature right it's just the way it is you know we'll figure it out or we won't figure it out but i'm not selling my stock and you know you know i don't want to take a hit now so we can misuse this idea of ocean 
That's why I was making the point of identity. It's like to see ourselves as a privileged person who has stock in energy companies, you know, when we look at that particular frame, then it illuminates where that view is coming from. I'm afraid of financial insecurity. You know, I'm afraid of having to lose some money or even change our habits, you know, around use of energy. So these, uh, these frames are really useful to expose, but that's also the ocean. So this is a really frees us up to be an activist, whether your way of being an activist is to raise a child or grow a garden or really get out on the streets and, you know, change the criminal justice system or something like that. That we can, we need to learn to tap into the ocean because it really allows us to do the work of life, the ordinary work of life, with a lot of love and a lot of ease. Right? Otherwise, everything feels really personal and really tight, and we're just less effective at responding to these very real issues. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. And I think we should probably leave it here. Just take a few seconds, let go of the words. You could pass the mic back to Trish in the corner there. It's nice just to have a few seconds of silence before we end together. Let go of the words. Letting everything move, emotions and thoughts, pain in the body from sitting for a long time. Just trusting that it's okay for this moment to be the way it is right now. Dropping into the ocean. And then embodying this particular unique existence, these feelings. Appreciating being here together. Thank you everyone for coming. And Trish has a few announcements for us tonight. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.